Hey everybody, welcome to Non-Trivial. I'm your host, Sean McClure. In this episode, we take a look at leadership, specifically the idea of the strong leader. Those individuals who stand by their convictions and dominate the room with their charisma and commanding attitudes. These are often the people we gravitate towards when we see them on screen giving their speeches. These are the people we often help bring to power. But history shows that it's often the calm, tranquil, and reasoned leader who fares much better when it comes to bringing about positive change, implementing effective foreign policy, and gaining the support of their party and the general public. In this episode, I will pick apart some of the underlying mechanisms that show how calm leadership can be much more effective, even though it can appear quote-unquote weak from the outside. I'll explore how leadership can be modeled mathematically and how all of this speaks to the power of remaining calm something that can dramatically improve our ability to be successful in this world. I am calling this the tractability of calmness. Let's get started. Okay, so from an overview perspective, um, I think this is going to be a pretty interesting conversation, as I like to call them on the podcast, even though it's just me speaking. Um, we're going to really dive into uh, this idea of leadership, this idea of being a strong leader. You know, this is the kind of thing that we typically get, uh, that we gravitate towards, right? We want our leaders, whether it's in a, a, an organization, right, a company, some kind of business, uh, some institution, or what we typically think on the political sphere. Uh, in the political sphere, the leader uh, of a country, right? We want them to be strong individuals. We want them to, you know, look good, to sound good, to have convictions that obviously align with ours. We want them to stick to those convictions. We want our leaders to be strong. But there is a massive downside to that. And uh, and if you actually step back and get the bigger picture, similar to the last episode, right? We said if we stand too close, um, things look crazy. But if we we you know step, uh, if we have more time, if we can step away, we can get the more holistic picture. We can see what actually works. And I think this is a good example of that. I think the leaders that make the most positive difference in the world are ones that don't necessarily come with these kind of overbearing attitudes or these, you know, the, the, this relentless addiction to a to a conf uh, to a to a conviction that they won't walk away from. These are people who are uh, able to persuade other individuals. Uh, they they can create good bridges. They compromise. Um, they can remain calm in the face of crises. And, and, and over the long run, these can be the people that make the most positive change. So I think that's really an interesting conversation because it says something about just calmness in general. You know, we go through life and there's, uh, you know, a lot of things to wrestle through uh, in life and we can get, you know, mad or we can just get uh, disheartened. Um, we can get stressed out about a lot of the things and the ability to, you know, remain calm amidst the storm and to allow yourself to have enemies, to allow yourself to have people who don't agree with you, but to still interact with those people. We're going to talk about how, you know, from a, from a tractability standpoint, the ability, you know, the, the underlying mechanism to solve problems. We're going to show how it's really, really beneficial to have a tolerance for your own enemies and, and to try to put yourself in their shoes and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that, that's what I'm calling the tractability of calmness. You'd be able to just, you know, kind of relax into it, uh, you know, love yourself as well as your enemies and, and be able to build bridges and don't burn them all. And just that over the long run, although it might not be easy, it can lead to uh, much better outcome. So we'll take a look at that. Um, I'll, I'll also touch on some of the 
Uh, I'll dip into mathematics a little bit. It's not going to get too crazy. I'll keep it very high level. So don't run away just because the word math is in there. Uh, but I think it's interesting that, you know, we can add a little bit of rigor to the mechanisms uh, to, to take a look at how those get modeled. Uh, we'll take a look at the role of leadership in a group and things like cohesion within the group. So the way to kind of mathematically model that and what do those models tell us about leadership? I think that's pretty interesting. And then we'll end off with some kind of life <laughs> lessons at the end. So some of the patterns and concepts I'll be discussing in this episode, decision-making, uh, self-dampening systems, system constraints, group problem-solving, dispersal of power, and just overall tractability. The book that I will be using to anchor the uh, the conversation this week is The Myth of the Strong Leader by Archie Brown. The Myth of the Strong Leader, Political Leadership in the Modern Age. It's a book by Archie Brown. Uh, I recommend it. It was really interesting. You know, it goes into a lot of details about different leaders, uh, you know, which ones failed, which ones were successful, which ones had the support of the party, which ones lost it and had to resign. A lot of the stuff that I'll be talking about in this episode. Um, but it was really just a good kind of counter view to what we normally are exposed to, this idea that leadership is supposed to be strong. And if you actually look at political leadership in the modern age, you'll find that the story is quite different. So The Myth of the Strong Leader, Political Leadership in the Modern Age by Archie Brown. Go ahead and check that book out. Uh, I'll use that to anchor this episode. Okay, so let's begin with just talking about types of leadership. Um, Archie Brown in his book, The Myth of the Strong Leader, uh, has kind of three main categories. He has a few others that he talks about, but really three main types of leaders, the redefining leader, the transformational leader, and the revolutionary leader. Okay, so in redefining leadership, this is uh, basically a leader is able to do course correction. So something is going on, let's just say in the country, and uh, it's maybe not that great, right? There's, you know, maybe it's uh, economically something's going down, socially is going, something is, is not working out that well. Maybe the two of them, something is just, you know, not as good as it could be. So there needs to be some kind of course correction. And so you have leaders that, are, that, that have this redefining leadership. They're able to come in to, to the system and help redefine what's needed. We'll take a look at, you know, how these different things work, but just think about these as the three main types. So redefining leadership is one. Transformational leadership is an actual systemic change. And so you're not just doing a course correction within the system. You're actually kind of uh, uh, doing something more inherent, more deeply profound within the system itself that has to change in order to produce a positive outcome. That would be a transformational leader. And then the revolutionary leader is one where you basically do a system overhaul, right? So, so redefining leadership is the course correction. Transformational leadership is the systemic change. Revolutionary leadership is, you know, essentially overhauling the entire system in order to bring about the change that, that, that is hopefully better. So redefining transformational and revolutionary. Well, among those, I mean, if you go back, if you think about those three things, right, there, there obviously is a need for a type of strength in there. If you're going to have a course correction in your system, you need a type of strength to make that happen, or at least it seems what we would consider strength, right? Strong. Um, you need to be able to influence, right? The people in your party you need to be able to influence the public. You have to bring about the change. If it's transformational leadership, up one step from redefining, you know, even more so. And if it's revolutionary, you would imagine that, uh, you know, you would need, well, a revolutionary, a rare, you know, an extremely strong, charismatic individual who can lead the people and uh, who can stick by their convictions. And so we're going to challenge some of these ideas that, although there are leaders who are redefining transformational and revolutionary, the type of individual, the traits that you might normally associate with an individual who could bring about those changes might not be what you think, if you'd actually take a look at the political history. And we can see this in organizations as well. So that brings us to, to kind of this next topic, which is 
what does strong mean? Well, the common interpretation or, you know, is this charismatic individual, right? These personalities that, that lead to their popularity. They typically have kind of domineering traits. Uh, it tends to centralize decision-making power to one or a few individuals, right? Because they're strong, right? These are, you know, we'll take a look at some historical figures um, throughout politics uh, in a bit, but these people who kind of centralize that decision-making to either just themselves or to a very small party, um, because that's the strength. They they stick by it. They're not going to dilute their power by letting everybody have a voice. Um, and they tend to develop kind of a cult of personality, right? You you people tend to become obsessed with the individual beyond who the individual actually is. It kind of becomes this you know enigmatic, not even real anymore kind of thing, right? This personality, this name that is attached to this individual has little to do with the individual anymore. They kind of develop this cult of personality. So. That's kind of what we typically mean by strong. In other words, strong looks strong, right? It doesn't sit in the back. It's not unknown. It's, it's very well-known. It's very in your face. It's popular. It's demanding. It demands the attention, right? And, and people naturally gravitate towards that definition of strong. Well, let's start to pick this apart a little bit as we take a journey into trying to understand how important it is to have a quote-unquote strong leader as I've just defined it. And the first part that kind of goes against this narrative is when you take a look at the constraints on leadership. In other words, if you take a look at the political systems that exist and the leaders within those systems and you realize that they're actually quite constrained to do things, that those traits of strength that I just defined, you know, you got to be charismatic and you got to, you know, kind of centralize the power and you got to stick by your convictions start to become less and less useful. So in other words, even if those were good traits, you might not be able to execute them anyway. And therefore, if you do look at leaders who did a good job, it couldn't have been those traits that led to it because of the constraints on leadership. Okay, so let's pick that apart a little bit. Well, it's actually very difficult, as uh, as was described in the book by Archie Brown, The Myth of the Strong Leader, it's very difficult to be a redefining leader. That was one of the, you know, we had redefining transformational revolutionary. So if you start with kind of the redefining leader, it's very difficult to be even just a redefining leader, someone who has a little bit of a course correction within the system. In fact, it's almost impossible to be a transformational leader in the 20th or 21st century USA. So difficult to be a redefining leader, almost impossible to be a transformational leader where you get actual systemic change. So a good example would be uh, you know, US presidents uh, that, that have their full political resources at their disposal. They, they tend to have less leverage than German chancellors and British prime ministers. So if you take, I'm using US presidents as an example because, you know, I guess the most powerful country on earth. And typically we use the United States as kind of an example of a lot of leadership, but we'll use um, some of the German and British later as we, as, as we make comparisons. But, but the US president, let's use that as an example. You know, we want that US president to be strong. We think of strong leaders throughout history, but they actually have a lot less leverage than German uh, chancellors and British prime ministers if you take a look at the systems. And I'll talk about this in a bit, but there's a lot of constraints put in place uh, in, the, in, this, in the U.S. presidential system that don't allow a U.S. president to, to really wield that much power. So even if you have someone who's very charismatic and, and uh, you know, appearing, quote unquote, strong, someone that a lot of people gravitate towards, you have to ask yourself whether or not they're going to be able to execute that strength, <laughs> whether they're going to be able to use that so-called strength to even make a difference anyway. And the reason why, again, I'm bringing that up is it starts to kind of chisel away at that myth of the strong leader, because even if you have traits that you think are strong, but you can't actually leverage them, you can't actually, you know, execute on, on, on this big personality that you have, on these convictions that you have, then whatever successful outcomes you do have in the U.S. presidency or other types of leadership 
couldn't have been from the from the personality of the individual anyway. Does that make sense? Okay, so it starts to pick away at that myth a little bit. Um, you, you you could say throughout history that Roosevelt and Johnson were probably the only redefining leaders in the U.S. and and a lot of you know if you think about why that was, it wasn't necessarily these big overbearing personalities or the charisma. It wasn't necessarily the you know addiction to conviction. It was actually due to their ample and effective use of the power to persuade. Okay, so although that still kind of sounds strong, but it's a little bit softer than you know. It's 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 this individual who has these convictions and can get everybody to just get aligned. Um, it's the power to persuade. It's a bit of a softer side of things. And we're going to see as we start to look at the traits of individuals who are successful, they tend to be um, a little bit more on uh, traits that we would associate with, with things that are a little bit softer than strong. But let's, let's pick apart Rose, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt a little bit uh, and Johnson a little bit just to kind of uh, have this conversation about what I mean by that. Okay, so Franklin D. Roosevelt, right? Uh, we know that Hoover came right before and and Hoover had troubles with the press and the bureaucrats and especially with Congress. We'll just do a little comparison here so I can tell you what I mean by the power to persuade. You know, Hoover had little success in persuading others to go along with his programs, right? He kind of had this um, personality that was shy. He was not very articulate. Okay, so then you got Franklin D. Roosevelt that comes in and in stark contrast, uh, we think of Roosevelt as being a very spirited individual, right? He confronted the same economic and social problems uh, when he replaced Hoover in 1933. So the same things that Hoover was essentially dealing with Right, Franklin D. Roosevelt had to deal with, but he worked very hard at selling himself and his New Deal programs. Okay, the New Deal, if you're not familiar, was a series of programs. Uh, you know, essentially these public work projects. You know, financial reforms, regulations. They were enacted by FDR in the U.S. between 1933 and 1939, and he was able to convince uh, you know a lot of men and women to accept what would be considered now kind of and at the time unfavorable appointments. Right, he motivated his congressional leaders to provide legislative action. He was able to convince the business community and its labor to support presidential initiatives. So some people might already be saying, well, it does sound like strong, you know, it's like a strong individual. But I guess what I'm trying to get at here is it's not necessarily, you know, Franklin D. Roosevelt was this big personality sitting on the stage and giving these commanding speeches and he looked strong. It was more of an individual who kind of almost behind the scenes had this power to persuade. He knew how to have the conversations with the right people at the right time. He knew how to uh, work with people and their strengths so that he could get a lot of these initiatives passed so that the New Deal, these series of programs, these public work projects, these financial reforms and these regulations that he had to enact could actually be successful between 1933 and 1939. He had the ability to kind of leverage other people's strength to get them to do what he thought was right. And so it's not necessarily something that, you know, at point blank looks like a, uh, a strength, but it's kind of this behind the scenes, almost uh, almost like a sales skill. And a lot of people say, you know, good political leadership in actuality is, is a lot like a salesperson. I don't necessarily mean because they're selling to the crowd. I mean, the ability to strike the right kind of conversations that convince people to do what's right. Um, let, let's continue that conversation. Actually, let me just touch on uh, Johnson a little bit too, because I think that's another example, Lyndon Johnson. Um, you know, he was one of history's most legislatively active presidencies, uh, presidencies right? Uh, he was essential to the passage of what was, uh, you know, called the Civil Rights Act, uh, to Medicare, Voting Rights Act, and even the Public Broadcasting Act. Okay, he rose from poverty in West Texas to become a, a congressman. He was the youngest Senate Majority Leader in history and ultimately president, as we know. So there's, there's something called the the Johnson Treatment. Okay, so Lyndon Johnson's persuasive tactics. Uh, you know, Mary uh, McCrory, which was an American journalist and col uh, columnist, described them as an incredible potent mixture of persuasion, badgering, flattery, threats, reminders of past favors, and future advantages. <laughs> okay. 
I'll say that again. So, so again, uh, Mary uh, McRory, who was an American journalist and columnist, described uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, using this quote, an incredible potent mixture of persuasion, badgering, flattery, threats, reminders of past favors and future advantages. So, you know, it's not necessarily all, you know, happy go lucky, but he's got this power to persuade. He's got this power to talk to people, to remind them of things. Apparently he had a very good memory. It's these things that aren't necessarily in your face traits of strong individuals. They're more how to strike good conversations with people to get things to happen. Okay. Um, Lyndon Johnson, uh, you know, he'd immerse himself in the facts of a situation. You know, he's known for reading hundreds of pages on a topic and speaking to everyone he could about it. Right. So again, he's not getting up and speaking to, you know, necessarily in a strong fashion. He's speaking to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. And, and that's so that he could ultimately make the most persuasive case possible. So it's this kind of behind the scenes, you know, having the right conversations, different types of conversations, you know, everything from flattery to badgering, <laughs> you know, uh, reminders of different past favors. You were really taking an assessment of the situation and doing what's needed to, to do what he thought was best. And so, and so in many ways, this is the not so powerful president under the usual definition of power, under the usual definition of strength. And if you take a look at the systems, if you, you know, and actually the, on the next episode, we're really going to start looking at democracy and some of the myths of democracy. But if you look at the way these systems are designed, they're designed with constraints. And they're designed with constraints because they don't want, you know, things like tyranny to happen. They don't want any one individual who will definitely have failings baked into what they do to last too long. So we switch out the leaders on a regular basis. There's a lot of things that are baked into the system to make sure that those constraints are in place. So changing the way people think about politics and introducing radical policy change is, is a very tall order for any American president and, and any leader really in any democracy, uh, but especially in the U.S. Uh, and again, I use the U.S. as an example because I think, you know, <laughs> you get more, you tend to get more of the kind of charismatic type leaders, not always, but, you know, you think of the U.S. and you think of freedom and you want that strong leader. So I'm just kind of using them as an example right now, but we'll definitely take a look at other uh, nations going forward. But let's take a look at some of those constraints that are in place in the American system. So reasons would be uh, strictness, separation of powers. Uh, so, so strictness in terms of the, the laws that they put in place, separation of powers. Uh, Congress is an unusually strong legislature. The Supreme Court is willing to pass judgment on presidential actions and powerful lobbies. Okay. So even though you've got the lobbies and you've got presidential actions, you've got the Supreme Court there and they're willing to pass judgment on those, right? There's a willingness for dissent there. Um, there's a strictness to adhere to those principles. Uh, so, so the American president's scope for action is actually far more limited than the prestige of this apparently ultra-powerful office would suggest. Again, why am I talking about the constraints on leadership? Because if you have a lot of constraints on leadership, then the, the so-called strong traits of an individual can only do so much. So it goes against this idea that a strong leader is going to come in and shake things up. Well, they can't really shake things up. Not, not the way we, we normally think. In fact, the best way to do that would be, again, like, like the, the, you know, the Lyndon Johnson example and the, the Franklin D. Roosevelt example is kind of more behind the scenes, striking a lot of different conversations, understanding both your friends and your enemy, having the ability to persuade. Persuade is a softer thing, right? In my opinion, it's not really a, a get up and shout kind of thing, or it's not like I have to look really strong because that's more of a cult of personality, right? When someone comes across and just looks strong, that alone tends to, you know, people will gravitate towards it. And like, I just want that person in power. Whereas the power to persuade is a softer kind of protracted, uh, takes a while 
different types of conversations, really good memory, knowledge of the system, good knowledge of facts, how to talk to people. It's it's more of a a drawn out calm kind of thing that ends up leading to really good outcomes, as we'll see in a bit. So that's why I'm talking about the constraints on the system. The constraints on the system make it so that you can't really get in there and like you know, like a bull in a china shop and just start messing things up. It just you're not able to do that. So if you're going to make a positive change, you have to have that power of persuasion. You have to understand people. You have to be able to, as we'll see, do things like make concessions and compromise and get into that behind the scenes type of stuff. Um, leaderslip, leaderless revolutions is another thing. And, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because then it's, you know, kind of begs the question, well, are leaders even needed, right? Um, not all around, but if, if you can have things like leaderless revolutions, then what, what does that say about this idea of strength? Where you need a strong leader to come in and that's where the revolution comes from. Again, going back to those three types of leadership, we've got the redefining leadership, we've got the transformational leadership, we've got the revolutionary leadership where you actually have like, you know, essentially a system overhaul. Well, if you can have leaderless revolutions, what does that say about that? Spontaneous revolutions have begun with no leaders at all, without deliberate planning, uh, you know, but they still take off with rapid speed. Now, this should, you know, for my usual non-trivial listeners, you should probably start thinking about some of that, you know, collective decision making, how uh, things can, you know, emerge in groups in aggregate and how that can end up solving problems, right? So we'll get into a little bit of that later, obviously, but um, spontaneous revolutions that have no leaders uh, happen throughout history. Uh, and that leaders will typically come after the revolutions, right? Jacobins in France, um, the Mensheviks and Bolsheviks in Russia. Some examples where you've got this kind of spontaneous revolution happening. And then even though we associate a strong leader with the revolution, they actually came after the fact after it had emerged. Okay. Um, it's often impossible to predict opposition and resentment against the state and, and, and the explosion that happens across the country. So these things emerge, right? Essentially spontaneously. French Revolution of 1789, the Russian Revolution of, of, of 1917, and the, you know, the Chinese Revolution of 1911 um, would satisfy this kind of spontaneous pattern uh, of leaderless revolution. Again, even though after the fact, a leader will come in and take over from there. So, so again, it's begging this question, right? Are leaders even needed to, to have what is actually the strongest form of these three main types of leadership, right? Redefining transformational revolutionaries. So even in a revolution, they can occur without any leader at all. Okay. Again, why am I bringing that up? Because it goes against this myth that you have to have the strong leader in order for something to happen, right? What does that say about leadership at all, right? In general. So there is such a thing. So, so what does all this mean, right? Kind of stepping back from this. Well, I think there's such a thing as too strong, right? And this shouldn't be too surprising. There's this kind of self-dampening aspect to self-assuredness. Uh, I've used that term self-dampening before. And this idea where it's almost like a snowball, you can imagine, where you've got something and then it rolls and rolls. And, you know, the more, let's say the bigger it gets, it starts to slow down. You can kind of imagine as an analogy. So in other words, you might have something that appears really strong, but it, it ends up biting you in the long run. And I've got this kind of for, for uh, the Patreon viewers um, can kind of see on this visual that I have here, I've got this little chart at the bottom right, this little trend line, where you've got this self-assured attitude that starts to take you um, in good places, let's say, you know, you're self-assured, you're confident, and maybe it has a good impression on people, but then all of a sudden it, it, the, the, it, it stops you. And then all of a sudden it starts to slow you down, you know, kind of the, the ego is the enemy kind of thing. And the outcome ends up being really bad. Um, Let's use some examples of, of this kind of self-dampening dampening aspect to self-assuredness, some leaders. So Lloyd George, Neville Chamberlain, Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair. Um, 
if you actually look out, look through history and, and understand the stories behind these individuals, they paid a serious political price for their dominating attitudes. Okay, these are these are prime ministers who resigned. Uh, they could no longer have the confidence of the house. Right? They had they they lost the confidence of the house. Their own people essentially turned against them. Um, this kind of thing leads to removal from office as a result of alienating a sufficient number of their own colleagues. Okay, rather than like you know from the more usual form of rejection, you know, at the hands of the electorate or whatever. So, um, if we take a look at some of these people. Um, let's do, you know, thinking about Lloyd George, you know, that's a very controversial figure. Uh, his own party could not decide whether or not to support or abandon him. Right. He was largely, you know, he largely disregarded the problems facing the party. Uh, he preferred to work for himself. Right. As a result, he's, he's one of the greatest liberal leaders who also was largely responsible for the party's downfall. Okay. So you've got this individual who behind the scenes, wasn't doing the kind of things that we talked about. Uh, with the case of Johnson and 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 Roosevelt, right? He wasn't building the bridges. He wasn't making the compromise. He wanted to, to essentially work for himself and his own ideas. He wasn't, you know, willing to walk away from his own convictions. And so, ultimately, even though he probably came forward as a pretty, um, you know, transformational figure, seemingly, um, it ended up going against him, and he had to resign. Okay, um, Neville Chamberlain, right? Famously acquiesced to Hitler, right? Giving into Hitler's territorial demands. So most of us know the story. Um, Chamberlain, of course, hoped that that you know kind of humiliating sacrifice would satisfy Hitler's last major territorial demand and thus avert another catastrophe. Of course, that did not happen. Uh, you know, Chamberlain had a complete failure of his efforts to preserve peace. You could argue, right? So again, you can you can understand. Well, maybe you know he was trying to make a concession there, and that was good. But um, if you take a look at how you know, Churchill actually characterized Chamberlain, he said he was you know he was an upright, competent, well-meaning man fatally handicapped by a deluded self-confidence with compounded and already debilitating lack of both vision and diplomatic experience. So, so Churchill's quote there is an upright, competent, well-meaning man, so it seems good. But then Churchill also quipped that poor Neville would come badly out of history. I know I will write that history. Okay, so, so Churchill on one hand said, like, like this is a well-meaning man, but you know it, it's not going to come out well in history. And so you can kind of get into the history of, of Neville Chamberlain and see that he was making some decisions that, again, weren't really listening to maybe some of the experts around him. I mean, a lot of people were saying, look, I don't think giving in to Hitler is necessarily a good thing. Um, Hitler's got this kind of, you know, <laughs> way of doing things that makes sense that it, it, it makes sense that he's probably going to turn um, turn around and not fulfill his his promise. And of course, that was the case. Um, Margaret Thatcher, uh, you know, in the 1980s, um, You've kind of got this near simultaneous crisis of communism in the East and social democracy in the West uh, that kind of gave her the opportunity to do great deeds, right? Uh, and, and obviously that would require a great leader to take advantage of it. She was known as the Iron Lady, right? But, you know, she was one of the most divisive British prime ministers of modern times. She was admired and reviled, you could say, in equal measure, owing as much to the self-righteous way which she pursued her policies, right? The self-righteous way that she pursued her policies. Um you know, she won famous victories, right? Uh, but showed no generosity to the defeated in word or deed. As a result, she failed to create harmony out of discord. She was always preferred winning a fight to reaching a compromise. Again, you, these are not my opinions, right? So if you go read a lot about the history of Margaret Thatcher and how she actually did her Iron Lady thing, you know, she was very, very uncompromising. Uh, she really wanted to to win. Um, and she says that's how she got that term, kind of Iron Lady, for that decisive leadership, specifically in the Falklands War. But most of, her, most of her battles were fought against sections of her own people. So like, you actually take a look at the history of Margaret Thatcher and what was going on at the time. She was fighting internally. She was fighting with her own people, right? So even though she was, you know, arguably Britain's, well, definitely Britain's most successful female politician ever, you know, um, she regarded feminism as poison. She did little to encourage women to follow her. <laughs> um, 
yeah, you know, the shift towards finance that Thatcher promoted heightened inequality. If you actually look throughout the history, you know, it, it made the economy much more volatile. Uh, and ultimately, she resigned as prime minister and party leader in 1990 after a challenge was launched to her leadership. So again, Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, a strong personality coming forward. You can see why many people would gravitate towards that. But if you look at the way that she conducted business, the way that she did decisions kind of for herself, the way that she just wanted to win an argument, traits that are strong, right? Quote, unquote, strong, um, but ultimately do damage, do damage to the party. And then most of the fights she ends up having with, with her her own people, and then again, forcing the resignation ultimately. So again, go down to the, the people on non-patron that you can see that image that I have. You've got the self-assured attitude. You're not deviating from your convictions. You're strong. You're the iron lady. It, it has the self-dampening aspect that ultimately leads to, to, to bad outcomes. And even though you've got some victories in there, again, history is going to really remember the bad stuff, right? It's going to take a look at the, the, the failures of the leadership that come about from not being calm, from not being tranquil, from not listening to those around you. Again, I'll define calm and tranquility more uh, from a mechanistic standpoint as we go forward. But, but that's, that's what that is. Let's use one more example, Tony Blair. Um, you know, so I think uh, history largely attaches his name to what happened with the Twin Towers in 9-11, right? So when the Twin Towers came down nine months after, you know, Bush entered the White House, Blair's words were the most powerful that Americans had heard from abroad. So Americans at the time were really clinging on to Tony Blair's words. You know, they were elegant. He's a great speaker. He was speaking from the heart. At least that's how it sounded, right? Um, Tony Blair believed absolutely in the existence of Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. Of course, that was mistaken, right? He convinced himself that, that too much delay would be a display of weakness. So there we go, right? So Tony Blair thought that, again, let's say that again, that that he, he had convinced himself that too much delay in, in going after um, the so-called weapons of mass destruction in Iraq would be a display of weakness. And, and so he was totally set on that conviction and no one could change his mind, right? He had this, this deep loyalty to Bush at the time uh, after the 9-11 and it just really trumped everything else. It trumped everything else. So the result, of course, was the invasion in 2003, right? Iraq had come to dominate Blair's legacy so much that um, even though if you take a look at no, uh, you know, Tony Blair's other uh, notable achievements, right? He had the, the, the Good Friday Agreement, he had the, the, you know, the devolution of, of Scotland and Wales, the minimum wage and a number of social reforms, um, you know, that they just get completely overshadowed by this, you know, Iraq invasion of 2003. He resigned as prime minister and the Labour Party leader in 2007 and was, uh, of course, succeeded by George, uh, sorry, Gordon Brown. So Lloyd George, Neville Chamberlain, you know, Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair, they, you know, on the surface did appear to many as very strong leaders uh, with deep convictions, but it was that inability to walk away from those convictions, to listen to the other uh, experts and, and, and individuals and even the general public, you know, they wanted to win their fights. They wanted to appear strong. Again, that example of Tony Blair, right? He wanted to act fast. He wanted to appear strong and, and that ended up leading to bad outcomes and ultimately the resignation of all four of these individuals. So um, that, that alienation of your own colleagues is something that comes from uh, too much strength. And again, I, I put quotes around that strength. I would say that's not a real form of strength, is it? But that appearance of strength, appearing to be strong, can have really, really bad outcomes for, for yourself as an individual and everybody that you drag along with it. So if you're the CEO of a company, if you're the leader of a nation, these can have uh, pretty dramatic uh, byproducts. Okay. So there's this, there's this looking strong versus being strong. And, and this is what I want to get into now is, is this idea of strength, true strength. So let's take those quotes off, quotes off it. 
Um, true strength operates backstage, right? If leaders don't have as much power as we think, because we just took a look at the constraints of the system and, and all the bad outcomes, their charismatic personalities and so-called strong traits can't be the reason for certain leaders to succeed. Okay, so that's why I was talking about all those constraints on the system, right? They don't have that much power to begin with. So so all those so-called strong traits can't be the reason that that they necessarily succeed, but it can be the reason that they fail because uh, with you know it's asymmetric, right? You've got these constraints on the system and you're constantly pushing up against those constraints with the need to win battles and the, the, the need to appear strong. strong. Uh, it, it, you don't, you're not able to wield that. So when you do go to force something to happen, it, go, it, it butts up against all these constraints and the system strains because of it. And, the, and then the people who respect you know, the, democratic pro, the democratic process and all those constraints that are in place for a reason uh, turn against you and on and on. Okay. So, so looking strong and being strong are not the same things. True strength, you could argue, works behind the scenes, right? Again, I think that you know that, that Lyndon B. Johnson example is really good of that. Just striking different conversations, understanding the facts, slowing things down, taking time. It might not appear strong, but in the end, it really is strength because it takes a true strength of character to do that, to slow things down. And to to talk to your, you know, we'll use examples, you know, Nelson Mandela, and individuals like this who we'll talk about in a bit, who who you know had to really work with their enemies, right? Uh, I think Mandela being the extreme example of just being able to take someone who you vehemently disagree with and and slow it down and try to understand where they're coming from and just try to 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 strike that compromise, that middle ground, or you know, even if it's kind of still leaning to a side. That takes an amazing strength of character to do that, a, a really deep self-awareness, an awareness of the situation, the ability to rise above it, to see something bigger than the current moment. You know, that is true strength. And that works largely behind the scenes because it's not something that you communicate at large in, in a speech. It's not something that riles up a bunch of people really quickly. It's something that is protracted and takes a while and uh, and, and definitely works behind the scenes. Now. I also want to talk about this idea of crises uh, presenting opportunities for control. The reason why I want to talk about this, so a crisis, right? Something, you know, a war is going on and something major is happening, you know, a virus or whatever, right? This, this presents opportunities for control. The reason why this is important to understand is because you could say, well, how did the, you know, a lot of these really charismatic leaders get into power anyways? I mean, I've already said that you kind of get gravitated towards them, but if they've got these really, you know, kind of traits that are, self-dampening and problematic, you know, how come so many of them not can just get into power, but can stay in power, right? Well, crises actually presents opportunities for a lot of control, for a lot of rise of power. And that shouldn't be um, too, too uh, surprising. So if you take a look at Roosevelt's New Deal, right, that was a response to economic depression in the 1930s. And he exercised his greatest power while US was engaged in a global war. Now, again, Roosevelt um, has got some good aspects to him in terms of his leadership. But the ability to get there in the first place um, was was very much a response to the economic depression in the 1930s. So there was a lot going on at the time. Now, you still have to be able to skill. If you're going to have a good outcome, you still have to be skilled in terms of what's going on during those depressions, right? And to, to be able to get that change to happen. But that's a lot of the opportunity for control. Johnson as well, we've talked about, came into the White House right after JFK was assassinated. You know, he sees the moment to persuade Congress, persuade Congress, right? The past legislation, which redefined citizenship. Um, you know, you could say that the last president with a strong claim to a transformation, uh, as a transformational leader, 
would be someone like Abraham Lincoln, right? 19th century America was in deep internal crisis at the time. So a lot of that is coming out of the turmoil, is coming out of the crisis, and people, um, you know, are looking for looking for that leader, um, you know, and and that can be good and bad, right? If the leader that goes in from that crisis knows how to do things kind of behind the scenes and stay calm amidst the storm, then they can have a good outcome. But you can also get really bad leaders um, that arise in crisis because. Uh, you know, it's a crisis and people are grabbing at straws and they just want someone to really be strong. But if that strength is something that allow, uh, disables their ability to walk away from convictions, that they have to win fights and they, ha- they, they they get addicted to appearing strong, you know, that can be very problematic. Take a look at 9-11 and the pretext surrounding that. The towers came down. Um, you know, Wolfowitz, Wolfowitz refused to believe that an organization headed by Osama bin Laden could not carry out the 9-11 tax without a state sponsor. You know, he believed that sponsor had to have been Saddam Hussein. You know, he was preoccupied with Saddam Hussein well before 9-11. Um, you know, the government was looking at Iraq for a while. Uh, crisis happens. You've kind of got this reason that's not the real reason to then go invade, right? This pretext. You got Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, and, and they, they use that kind of reasoning of the 9-11 tax to go ahead and invade Iraq, despite despite the fact that there, there was strong CIA um, opposition to that, right? The CIA position was that there was no convincing case for the linkage between, you know, uh, the, the, the towers coming down at 9-11, on 9-11 and, uh, and whatever was going on in Iraq at the time. So they kind of had this fake reason to make a connection that they've been wanting to make for a while. And then they used that. And so on this, you know, the previous one where I'm saying, you know, you've got this crisis and maybe some good leaders come into play. Here you got some crisis where, uh, existing leaders start to wield it for wrong reasons. And, and it just, you know, again, they need to, it's a perfect example of needing to appear strong, right? Understandably. I mean, towers come down September 11th and, uh, the country is just in crisis and, and something happened that not many people thought could even happen. You know, you've got the United States, most powerful nation on earth. And, and, you know, these, these people from, you know, essentially a, a country that's nowhere near as, um, economically successful and, and, are able to to do everything they had to do from a kind of a logistic standpoint to bring down these icons, these two towers, uh, you know, in New York City. It's just it's it's got that kind of cognitive dissonance to it, right? And um, like we talked about in the last episode, and uh, and it, it, there's it's a perfect example of of a country looking towards strength, and so people can get away with a lot of bad things here, right? If someone says, "Well, we think there's a connection between these and, and weapons of mass destruction." You know, a lot of people will go along with that. And again, you've got the Tony Blair coming in and who's, who's got this oratory, this ability to speak really well. And he's, you know, getting people motivated, you know, logic, reasoning, uh, tranquility starts to go out the window in moments like this because people do the knee jerk reaction. Okay. So, okay. Um, so yeah, we talked about, you know, the types of leadership, right? the kind of the cult of personality that pops up from that, uh, the constraints on a system, uh, the ability to have revolutions without leaders in general, the self-dampening aspect of that self-assuredness that can kind of come, and then the role of crises that can bring about, you know, essentially put people or maintain people into power that maybe shouldn't be, um, you know, unless you're a good leader that can do it. So I want to take a look uh, at this idea of collectivism now. Um, because we're talking about leaders, right? And if you think about one of kind of the main, obviously, movements or philosophies or ideologies that kind of goes against putting too much power in an individual, it would be something like collectivism, right? And one of its many manifestations. 
Um, so I want to talk about group priority versus centralized power for a second and, and kind of overlap that with what that means for leaders. So obviously, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, kind of a weaker form of socialism or full blown, um, you know, communism or whatever kind of manifestations of collectivism you want to talk about, right? Well, it only works when the role of the leader, true collectivism would only work when the role of the leader is minimized, right? Because you're talking about collectivism and you want, you know, really good representation. You want many people to be able to kind of weigh in their opinions. But we know that, you know, true, uh, at least, maybe I shouldn't say true, but at least the collectivism that was promoted throughout history and politics only actually occur with, uh, uh, a dictator, right? You need someone to enforce the collectivism. So you kind of got this paradox, right? We want collectivism. You want a lot of people to weigh in on what happens. You want to have that equality of outcome if you can get there or at least some form close to it. But in order to do that, you have to enforce a lot of rules. And so collectivism kind of demands this dictatorship or or some type of authoritarian rule. Um, so you've got individuals like Stalin and Mao, right? Um, Obviously, two examples of, of nations that, you know, from whatever failures came before, they said, look, we need more kind of collectivism. So they really bought into that philosophy, uh, you know, Russia really setting the stage for that. And then Mao later, you know, essentially a copying and then going on from what Stalin was doing. And those are uh, obviously largely regarded as um, massive failures throughout history, right, uh, in terms of politically. So Stalin, uh, you know, he, he really perpetuated a hostility toward the West for the sake of Soviet security. You know, by the time Gorbachev, it was clear. By the time Gorbachev came in, it was clear that capitalism was was not about to collapse. So that was a failure on Stalin's part. This kind of direct, extreme hostility towards the West and the, and the, and the capitalist ideology. You know, under under Stalin's leadership, millions um, millions of lives were lost due to famine. Right. Um, you got Mao Zedong, who was the first. You know, five-year plan. He had this what we call the five-year plan for the future of China. Right? It was it was launched by Mao in 1953, um, in which the Soviet Union was actually held up as the model for development. Right? So you've got what was happening in the Soviet Union at the time, and and Chinese saw that as a great thing and they wanted to copy it. Or at least Mao did. Um, you know, they had this kind of saying that the Soviet Union's today is our tomorrow. Right? That's what the, was said in China by Mao. So he brought about the so-called Great Leap Forward, right? That was from 1959 to 1961, and he and he just he praised the Chinese as, as uh, you know as an especially disciplined people who would do you know do as their government demanded, right? So you kind of you've got this propaganda of being like, look, every if if we believe in it and you do this for a while, there'll be this this really great you know equality outcome in the end. So just trust the government. So you've got this again this this kind of idealism of collectivism that demands the centralized power, right? Um, and so they, you know, involved industrialization of the agricultural reforms and, and agricultural reforms. They had this promise of eventual utopia, right? Um, Mao's measures involved, you know, uh, kind of the consolidation of collectives into gigantic people's communes, right? And that was supposed to achieve essentially economies of scale. Um, but, you know, the problems of agricultural food being eaten by birds in the fields and sparrows, they were going to eliminate those by a campaign against birds and wipe them out. So they all, all kind of, in hindsight, seemingly kind of goofy policies, right? This, this extreme intervention <laughs> where the government can come in and control things to try to force the equal, you know, outcomes of things or, or even in the environment, right? Good outcomes for the people. Um, so so that, that kind of war against the birds <laughs> to try to get rid of all the insects was essentially uh, an ecological disaster, right? Um, yeah, the, the insects just ended up proliferating at an absolute horrific rate. So it's kind of a, an example. But the reality of the whole thing was that harvests failed. Uh, and there was this great famine that, 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 that followed all of these, you know, the ecological disaster and these, these things that were put in place to try to, 
get everybody into a collective. Um, it's been called the greatest, largest famine in human history. And it's believed that up to 40 million people died as a result. Okay, so so Stalin and Mao are, for all intents and purposes, right, these massive failures that happened in the pursuit of collectivism. And 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 that's not to say that, you know, the other side of things doesn't have bad stuff as well, right? Um, but, uh, you know, just a little bit of history here. You, you have, um, you know, so you've got Mao Zedong and, and then you've got Deng, right? Uh, Deng Xiaoping, which was much more, who was much more successful. And what's interesting here, and the reason why I want to kind of do this backdrop is you've got, so you've got Stalin, Mao, collectivism, massive failure. And then you've got Deng coming after Mao, who wasn't in the top position in government. He never actually held the top position, but he had this willingness to listen to many different opinions. And his outcome is by far through, you know, according to history, much more successful than Mao, right? Deng emerged as China's new leader in the aftermath of the death of Chairman Mao Zedong, right? Deng, Deng arranged a meeting called the Third Plenary Session of the 11th Central Committee of the Communist Party of China. So he brought this, it was very kind of new at the time, right? To bring together a committee to kind of make this big decision. That brought an end to decades of suffering by the Chinese people under Mao's mismanagement and disastrous campaigns, right? These policies, you know, they, they really unleashed the, the, the creative and even entrepreneurial potential of the Chinese people, Right? They allowed China to break out of its self-imposed isolation. Right, He opened diplomatic relations with the United States, um, even though that was essentially initiated by Nixon and Kissinger. But, but he was part of that to open up the, the, those, those relations with the U.S. and the capitalism. Right, Deng understood that China needed to develop and would require a stable external environment that was conducive to an international trade and investment. Right, So he, he understood the power of being able to open up, access the external environment, you don't have to agree with what all other nations are doing, but by opening up those borders and and being able to to be involved in international trade and investment ends up being a very very good thing for China, right? He he really did away with the Maoist support for for that kind of global anti-capitalist revolution side of things, and you know he he came in and set aside a lot of the maritime disputes that China had with his neighbor with its neighbors, and and he really tried to gradually but still integrate China into much of the U.S.-led liberal international order. Okay, so you had this kind of quote-unquote reform and opening, which was just greater engagement with the international community, and and China just saw a remarkable period of economic and social development, right? Just unprecedented in human history, right? Um, China has increased since Deng its per capita income twenty-five fold. It's brought more than eight hundred million Chinese people out of poverty, poverty, and uh, and and that's actually more than seventy percent of the total poverty reduction in the world. It now China has has now one of the largest economies in the world, by some measures, the uh, largest. And it's, it's just an absolute global political power uh, w- you know, with a rapidly improving military. So <laughs> look at the difference, right? You've got Stalin and Mao, who on the surface would actually appear as stronger leaders by that kind of classic definition of strength, right? Uh, the oratory, the giving the speeches, the demanding people to get in line, the, the extreme centralization of that power, you know, the, the, the zero acceptance of dissent, you know, um, strong leaders, but they led to massive failures, massive famines, massive downside for the country. Whereas someone like Dong, uh, someone like Dang, sorry, much more successful. And he wasn't even in the top position, but he had this ability to listen to different opinions, to bring people together, to hold the committees and, and the, the improvement to the Chinese were just, I mean, it's almost unfathomable, fathomable, uh, compared to where they were before. So it's a different style of leadership, right? It, you know, you, you could say Dang is much more behind the scenes 
and not really a clawing for power uh, as much as someone like a Stalin or, or a Mao, right? Uh, less centralization, opening opening up the borders, uh, taking a look at a country like the U.S., which is almost diametrically opposed to the way that your country is doing something, and saying, "Okay, you know what? Let's let's at least work with them. Let's have less of that friction. Let's access the benefits from our surrounding environment while still preserving a lot of what we have as our own country." You know, trying to strike that balance—a very hard thing to do. It's easier to just say, "You know, I'm going to take the strong opinion. I'm going to hold to our convictions, and I'm not going to budge." And you can get a lot of people around that message, but it's typically quite damaging. Um, you know, you have stories of, of Genghis Khan who, who was, who always kind of folded in the, the inventions and the customs and the cultures of the people that he, that he conquered. Right. And there's a real benefit to doing that, to open yourself up to what other people are doing, but trying to strike a balance so that you still preserve your own culture and your own identity. So I think that's an interesting story with that. So, um, also kind of interesting is that free markets just in general, tend to exhibit more genuine collectivism than socialist regimes, right? If you think about the ideology of collectivism itself, where you're getting a lot of people to get together, well, you have to allow for the opening up, you have to allow for dissent, you have to allow for the everyday individual to have that freedom. So it's kind of this paradox, collectivism and, and its traditional centralization of power that really, really works against it. Okay. Um, and then we've also got this idea that just ego is error prone, right? Ego is the enemy, right? This, this idea that, you know, if you don't go through life with a decent amount of humility, that that's really going to work against you. And it does, you know, leaders who tend to fancy themselves as strong individual leaders, individual leaders are throughout history shown to be much more prone to serious error, much more prone to serious error because they don't, they don't, they don't have any kind of system to check on themselves, right? The idea that you're going to have all the ideas that you that you've got this belief that is so strong that you're just going to push it through no matter what can have um you know a lot of damaging things right and you could argue that maybe some of that works for uh you know a while right you've got a, got the Steve Jobs story of you know well he had this kind of bubble of unreality or whatever they called it around him and he just he had this strong conviction that things had to be a certain way and and you know there's there's some upside to that obviously in terms of innovation there's a lot of downside to that i mean he got fired from his own company right um it's also debatable how much he was really like that. I mean, I think the guy probably still had some some decent, he definitely had the power to persuade and I'm sure he was still doing things a lot uh, behind the scene because when you're really passionate about things, that's what you tend to do. But people in general who discount the accumulated knowledge of those with expertise typically fail, right? And uh, you know, foreign policy decisions are almost always worse with authoritarian and autocratic regimes um, because these regimes don't allow dissent from below. And they believe that one leader can make, you know, essentially all the decisions, you know, and again, Margaret Thatcher, right? Iron lady example, you know, yeah, it's good to have convictions, but you have to be able to walk away from them. And we've talked about, you know, the true purpose of Occam's razor, right? This idea that you're going to put a super tight, simple narrative in place. So that could be your conviction. Like here is specifically what I believe. Okay, that's good because you're precise and you can be very clear about it. But the reason why it's so good to be so clear about that is so that it can die easy right? So that it can be attacked because if it's vague, people don't really know what you're talking about. It ends up getting propped up longer than it should. But if I'm very precise about what I believe, then it's easy for you to attack it. And that's what you want, but you have to be willing to kill it, right? If it survives over a long period of time, while you're very precise and tight with your narrative, then that says something about its ability to be a good, you know, philosophy or ideology or whatever it is, policy, right? But if you're very, very tight with your narrative and specific, but people are trying to they are, you know, raising really good objections to it and you don't listen to it. You don't allow that dissent. 
that's going to come and bite you because it's just not compatible with the system as whole. It's not something that is meant to survive and nature will eventually win out. If you push something that is too strong that is supposed to die because it just doesn't work with the way the mechanics of nature work, but you but you prop it up artificially through centralization of control, uh, through tyranny, right, through threat, through force, whatever it is, then uh, it's 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 it, it will definitely fail eventually because it will definitely lead to bad outcomes because that's how nature works, right? It, it's not it has to be whatever it is you put forward has to be commensurate with with with, with the mechanics of nature. And if you take a look at the tractability of problems and how things get solved, which we talk about all the time on this podcast, right? You know. It, it won't work. It won't work. Um, and unfortunately, in politics, that means you can bring a lot of people down with you, right? A famine that kills 40 million people because of your in, you know, inability to walk away from a conviction uh, and to listen to those around you is... Uh, to say it's a tragedy is an understatement, right? So it, it pays to be aware of how things actually um, happen. Um, Dispersal of power I want to talk about now. So so that gets into this idea that, you know, the dispersal of power will lead to success, which it, which is against kind of this myth of the strong leader, right? Because those who appear strong typically are not dispersing their power. Because if you disperse your power, you will delegate to other people, you will allow their strengths to come forward, you will you will be doing, you know, matchmaking and subtle persuasions and facilitating of the conversations and a lot of things that quite frankly happen in the background and you won't be again sticking to that conviction super strong and yelling it from the from the mountaintop right you will disperse that power and because the power is getting dispersed you will get less attention because of it but that that is what leads to better outcomes and history will show that you were truly a strong leader for dispersing the power and trying to maintain it for yourself and you can see this throughout history. So in the history of the two major communist states, the Soviet Union and China, right? The periods of increased collective leadership were far less devastating. Okay, take a look at, at, at Soviet Union and China, the periods of increased collective leadership. You know, again, they still have a lot of collectivism to them and communist aspects to them, but the periods of increased collective leadership where you are, now to be clear, we're using the term collective as in, you're listening to others, like true collectivism, right? You're listening to those around you. You're allowing, you're, you're allowing for dissent. You're allowing for change. Those types of leadership were far less devastating. Again, Deng is a, is a perfect example of that, right? So totalitarian and authoritarian regimes, they, they exist on a continuum, right? On the totalitarian extreme, you have someone like uh, Enver Hoxha, right? Enver Hoxha of Albania, who... Um, well, I'll talk about him in a second. Um, and, and, and Kim Il-sung of North Korea, right? Two individuals who would be on the totalitarian side of things. And on the other side of things, you have, you know, maybe what you might call mild authoritarianism like Singapore, right? It's not a democracy and it has a vibrant market economy, but it's still got some maybe authoritarian aspects to it. And then on the other side, you might, you know, say you've got democracy, although... I guess it kind of depend, depends on how you define democracy. Um, but let me talk about, so, so I'm going to talk about just kind of the spectrum and, and that just gets into the fact, the reason why you have to disperse power. But, uh, you know, Enver Hoxha was the 22nd prime minister of Albania um, from 1944 to 1954, right? And Hoxha and his government were very hostile to Western popular culture. So there's that theme again. Uh, and that was manifested in the mass media along with, uh, you know, against consumerism and cultural liberalism 
that were associated with that. He was very much against that. Um, he demanded strict conformity. He had a 40-year tyranny that emerged as one of the most depraved in modern history, right? His atrocities uh, are rivaled only by, you could say, Adolf Hitler and, and, and Joseph Stalin. Um, you know, scientists and intellectuals were favorite targets, okay? Because those who were educated, he actually feared the most. Anything foreign was denounced as a danger. Musicians were banished to re-education camps for playing things like Mozart or worse, the Beatles, <laughs> and uh, and his communism ultimately failed. So you've got this extreme totalitarianism in Enver Hoxha of Albania, as an example. You can go read about them. And, you know, not good outcomes, right? These things don't work. It's an extreme centralization of power. It's an, it's an extreme version of not listening to uh, others, you know, he didn't like the scientists. He didn't like the researchers. Those were actually his favorite target. You know, the, the experts that were trying to tell him if something was, was you know, maybe not great, the dissent just absolutely wasn't allowed. So an extreme clinging to one's conviction is extremely problematic. And again, if it's in politics, devastating to, to, to potentially millions of people. Um, Kim Il-sung, North Korean, right? Um, North Korean life changed drastically for the worst right after Kim Il-sung's death in, in uh, 1944 because of his policies that he had put in place during his his time. Um, you know, large-scale famines again devastated the country, right? That would be in the late 90s. Uh, you know, he had foreign and economic policy failures uh, that just contributed to the crisis. So, yeah, uh, you know, again, extreme centralization, extreme you know, what you would call totalitarian, where essentially one man holds the supreme power, they, they just don't have good outcomes, right? Um, now, that's not to say democracy is all great and all perfect, but it is kind of a play against that. Um, you, you, and I, you do got to be careful about putting democracy on the other end of the dispersal of power, because that can really, really not happen in democracies. We're actually going to talk about this in the next episode, okay? And we're we're going to really pick apart democracy and how that gets defined in all kinds of ways and kind of the BS narrative that it all came out of Athens and all that kind of stuff. So we'll get into that. So I, I have it for people on on um, on, on Patreon.com can see that I've got uh, democracy as kind of the right on that spectrum. That's uh, you should probably put quotes around that because there's all kinds of ways to define democracy, and democracy can have problems go uh, bad with it too. But the line dispersal of power is very much correct in the sense that you've got regardless of what you want to call the government, right? Totalitarian, authoritarian, democracy. The less you disperse the power, okay, so let's just be agnostic to the labels. The, the, the less you disperse that power, the more problematic it's going to get, history will show. Okay, and that's the take-home message here. The more you disperse the power, which is kind of a weakness, quote-unquote, it appears, right, at face value, it appears weak. The more you disperse your power, the less you're going to be known. More like the dang example, right? You're not going to be not necessarily the, the most charismatic and the most commanding, right? You're not commanding a bunch of respect. You know, you're not disallowing dissent. You're allowing the dissent. You're allowing the conversation. You almost take a bit of a back seat for the most successful leaders. And history, history will reward those leaders as as signs of true power, as, as individuals who had true power over those that, you know, just would not walk away from their conviction. Okay, so now I'm going to jump into um, some mathematical models of leadership. So we talked a lot about, let's just do a really quick recap and don't run away just because you heard mathematics. I'm not going to go super crazy. I'll speak about it at a very conceptual level and high level. It's only about five or six kind of points. Um, 
again, so we've got those types of leadership, right? We've got the redefining leader, the transformational, the revolutionary. You're, you're either doing a course correction or you're bringing about an actual systemic change or you're overhauling the system. Um, you know, we've taken a look at what strong means typically. Then we took a look at the constraints on the systems and how, if you have those constraints in place, then how much can a leader really do anyway with that personality? So in other words, if you do have a good outcome, uh, it must be because of not necessarily the, the power to wield your conviction across the whole system, but rather your ability to work within those constraints to persuade, to kind of work behind the scenes. But if you do go the other way, you've got this asymmetry and you do hold on to that conviction, you know, the constraints of nature, the constraints of the systems are really going to, to explode. They're, they're, they're going to cause the system to essentially collapse. Um, leaderless revolutions where, you know, leaders aren't even needed to big, to bring about the biggest change ever, right? French uh, revolution, Russian revolution, Chinese revolution. You've got these, these examples where the leaders aren't even needed. Um, the self-dampening aspect to that self-assured attitude and the unwillingness to walk away from that convictions to, to true strength really being something that works behind the scenes. We talked about the crises. Uh, and then we got into this collectivism and the ego being a problem. And then we got the spectrum of the dispersal of power. Okay, so what I want to do now is take a look at mathematical models of leadership. So don't get scared if math is not your thing. Um, I just, you know, I talk a lot about uh, in, in non-trivial episodes, what I do is I basically, you know, try to to understand the mechanisms behind the patterns that I see, right? So, you know, if I'm talking about a particular you know, high-level concept or pattern that I think is important, or like I do in season three, where I kind of anchor the conversation with a book, but either way, I still, you know, identify a pattern or a set of patterns that I think are particularly profound or universal. And then I try to investigate um, the underlying mechanisms behind it, right? You know, what, what is, how does this pattern play out? What are the main core pieces and, and, and how do they relate to each other? Well, one way you can do that from a kind of a, a slightly more scientific standpoint is obviously through mathematical modeling. And I'm not here to dive into a bunch of heavy math, but I think it, you know, the, the, so coming up with a mathematical expression for something can be a nice way to capture you know, the core concepts that are being teased out by intuition, right? I think concepts and intuition are far more important than, than the laying down of things through mathematical symbols. But the mathematical symbols bring a precision and an anchor that can kind of help you really see how things relate to each other. And they can facilitate the conversation because, of course, you can embody or manifest those equations within computers and then you can plot them and you can, uh, can kind of play with them and see how things change. And I'll show you in a bit uh, I've actually set up a, a dedicated site, which I'll do from from this point forward for non-trivial that I call the non-trivial playground. Um, you can actually find it uh, at uh, nontrivial.online instead of .com, it's .online. So nontrivial.online, it's called the non-trivial playground. And I'll start setting up basically these different, um, you just have like little sliders and little graphs that change. So you can kind of play around with the mechanisms that I talk about on these episodes, right? So I basically, you know, take the mathematical model from from one of our studies, I bake it into this 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 playground application, and you can go play with them. So I'll show you that in a bit. Um, show you for the uh, Patreon subscribers, uh, for for those with audio, you can still head over. You can still have access to the playground. But anyway, so mathematical modeling uh, definitely can serve its purpose. It's a nice nice way to anchor the conversation. But you should never take these models too seriously because they are, you know, definitely make extreme approximations to to how things play out. Um, based on the concepts. But here, uh, for, for Patreon subscribers, you can see, uh, for audio listeners, just try to envision, I do have a formula here that comes from a study uh, called An Evolutionary Justification of the Emergence of Leadership Using Mathematical Models. And so basically it says, look, if we want to go ahead and, and model leadership, which is obviously what we're talking about in this episode, 
Um, you can do so by thinking of it in terms of the probability of survival. So in other words, you have a group of people and then you have a leader and that leader is either helping that group survive or not. And the way that you can model survivor survival, sorry, is with a survivor or survival function. And a survival function has a, you know, there's a number of different ways to write it out, but you can see for uh, Patreon subscribers, what it looks like here. You've got, you know, obviously, a, you know, a summation sign that basically sums all the individuals together. What it's summing is their actions, which is just a number. You can kind of just think of it as a, as a random variable between zero and one. And that uh, in, in the way that they've defined it here, if you're if, if that variable of the individual is close to zero, then it's more optimal, whatever that means, just you're kind of arbitrarily assigning that as optimal. And if you deviate from that zero, then it's non optimal. So you can sum all those together, you can multiply it by a beta, which is another parameter for the harshness of the environment. And then, uh, and then, yeah, you're summing it over the entire group. So what you have are kind of three dials or levers that you can play with on this expression, you've got the size of the group, the harshness of the environment, and then those actions taken from the individuals, whether or not they're close to optimal or not. And if you're close to optimal, then, you know, as a model of leadership, you can imagine the leader is having some positive influence over the individuals in that group, right? So in other words, if those X's in this formula are closer to zero, uh, and if, if you kind of see how that plays out in the formula, they get minus off the 100. So basically you want that very right side of that equation being low and the left side, uh, to the right of the equal sign, you basically want the 100 to be as much 100 as possible in order for the survivor survivability to be high. But anyways, the take home message here that I wanna point out is that you've got these kind of three levers to play with in this model. Size of the group, harshness of the environment, and actions taken by the individual. You can see a plot to the right for, for, non, for Patreon subscribers. You basically um, change the harshness of the environment. And then you also change on the x-axis the, uh, the, the kind of, how optimal the actions taken by the group are. And you can see that if they are less optimal, you get away from the zero, it starts to drop off and it drops off at a different rate, depending on the harshness of the environment. So these are these kind of levers, these toggles we can play to try to understand the dynamics of these patterns that I talk about in these episodes. And I thought this study was pretty interesting. So we can uh, kind of take home message here from this graph, this equation, we can say, the more challenging the environment, the more important it is for individual actions to be close to zero. So more important it is for those individual actions to be optimal. So from a leadership perspective, we want that leadership that, that leader to be having positive influence on the individuals so that given the different harshness of environments that they play into, um, you know, they have a good chance of survivability. And so a lot of this is pretty intuitive. It makes sense. Like if you have a harsher, more uncertain environment, you would expect the ability of a group to su uh, survive to be lower. If the individuals in that group are not close to optimal behavior, we would expect the survivor, uh, the, the survivability to drop off in that group. Um, and so even though those are pretty obvious, the fact that you have a simple mathematical, relatively simple mathematical expression to capture those patterns means this is a way to anchor those concepts, right? And you might say, well, you know, what's the point, right? I mean, we already know this kind of intuitively, why capture those in mathematical symbols? Well, we can embody or manifest this mathematical equation on a computer. And because we can do that, then we can make it play out. We can run it. We can try different combinations of size of groups and harshness of environments and actions taken by individuals. We can um, gooify it, right? We can set up this equation with a front end uh, and we can put little toggles and levers and you can move them yourself and you can start to play around and see how the graph changes as you do that. And that's a nice way to build intuition around the dynamics or the mechanics of the patterns that we talk about. So much so that I've actually set up a dedicated site called uh, that you can find on nontrivial.online. So instead of .com, it's .online, nontrivial.online. Anybody can head over there. I call it the non-trivial playground. Um, it, uh, you, when you get to the kind of the, the homepage, you just click on the square for the episode and then that will open 
a dedicated site that has um, one or more of these models baked into it and it's got levers and it's got the chart and so you can kind of play around with the mechanics of the model. I just want to do that because again, on all these non-trivial episodes, I'm talking about the underlying you know, kind of mechanics of the patterns that I think are interesting. So if you want to interact with those mechanics and see how they play out with some of these models, that gives you a way to kind of build some intuition around it. So for those interested, go ahead and head on over to nontrivial.online. It will take you to the non-trivial playground. I've just got the one episode set up now, this episode, because I've just started. But from this point going forward, I'll do this for, for all my episodes. Play around with the mechanisms that we talk about. Um, on this next uh, visual for, for the Patreon subscribers that you can see, another way that you can model uh, the group dynamics and, and the role of leadership is through cohesiveness. So the better group cohesion you have, uh, the better aligned the individuals are uh, to each other. They're all kind of doing the same thing is one way of thinking about this. And so one way that you can introduce this into the model that I just described previously is you can basically take an average of all the actions. Again, those actions are just numbers, right? They're just random variables. But if you take the average of them, and so you represent all the actions of those individuals with a single number, which is what an average is, and then you plug that into this uh, other formula that basically discounts the individual or diverse actions by a cohesive parameter and uh, augments or improves the the average because that's what cohesion is, then you basically come up with a new individual action that can then be summed. So probably pretty jargony there, maybe losing a few of you, especially if you don't have the visuals to look at. Don't worry about it. What I'm saying here is there's a way to introduce cohesiveness because in the original one when we're just summing a bunch of people together there was they, they were all independent actions okay but from a mathematical pers perspective you might want to say well you know people are talking to each other right they're working together there should be some kind of cohesion and in fact from a leadership perspective you could imagine that a leader would be able to help the group cohesion in fact that might be a mathematical way of defining what leadership is and so there's a way of kind of using averages and plugging those back into the original formula to introduce this dependence that people have on each other within a group. That's that's the take home message there. And uh, for those on Patreon, you can see the chart to the right there where we actually look at the effect of cohesion on survival. So as the cohesive factor increases, in other words, people are kind of working and getting more aligned. You can see the survival probability goes up because, again, we're just plugging it into that survivor function at the top there. Um, again, pretty obvious, right? But, but the purpose of this is not necessarily to see something that you didn't already know. It's the fact that these mathematical expressions are at least a reasonable anchor to the mechanisms that we, we understand about groups, right? And not, not, but you can also find some interesting, surprising things as well. Um, now in this, and, and I'm going to show you the, the non-trivial playground in a second for those that are on Patreon and, and for those on audio only, you'll just have to listen to what I speak, which I, hopefully will still be interesting. But before I do, I just want to show that everything here was kind of analytical. You've got the mathematical expression. You can go ahead and plot it. You can see the trend lines and, you know, make comments about what's happening in the groups and what the role of leadership might be, which I'll use going forward as we get back into some of the political examples. Um, but one more thing is the simulation. So when you have a lot of these combinations, you know, we're doing these little dials, these levers, we're changing the parameters of the equation to see how things play out. Of course, there's this kind of combinatorial explosion that happens. There's so many different combinations of those parameters that sometimes you just want to do thousands and thousands or millions of different combinations to see what happens. And that's where, uh, you know, the computer can really, really help, right? We can, you know, essentially program these mathematical expressions in a numerical fashion into computers, and then we can mix and match an absolute ton of different combinations of those parameters. And that's where simulation comes 
So various combinations of group size, harshness, and diversity in the case of the survivor function. Uh, we, can, we can choose a range of values to explore the different scenarios between two extremes. So you can have like no chance of survival. On the other end is, is you can have a group that survives no matter what. And so as we change these parameters, we're somewhere between those two extremes and, and we can try those different combinations. So um, here, here's the take home message from all this. If we step back and say, okay, we tried to capture some of these interesting patterns from these mechanisms of leaderships, right? In group, a leadership in groups and their ability to survive. And you can model that out mathematically and look at it from an analytical perspective. You can run you know, kind of these massive simulations on a computer. At the end of the day, you can step back and say, well, what has that told us? Is there anything interesting here? Or is it, is it at least aligned with what our kind of intuition is about leadership in groups? So here's some of the results from this particular study. Again, this is the uh, an evolutionary justification of the emergence of leadership using mathematical models. That's a paper. I got the link in here. So head on over to Patreon to check that out. Some of the results are um, diversity in action can actually hinder leadership, especially in large groups or harsh environments. Okay, so, you know, I've talked a lot about the importance of variation and diversity and making, you know, particularly complex problems tractable. So we know diversity can be a very good thing, but one of the costs to increase diversity is the need to manage it. So when we're thinking about this in terms of leadership, uh, you know, too much diversity can actually be a bad thing unless you have a way to manage it, right? Unless you have a way to, um, basically coordinate the actions of the group. And anyone who's done any kind of leadership in their life knows this. If you've, you've been you know, a manager or something in a director level or CEO of a company or whatever it is, and you've got a decent sized amount of people, the more people that you introduce into a project, um, you know, the more challenging it can get. Uh, it, you, you have the benefit of the different diverse opinions that can be really, really good information to help, you know, uh, statistically sample from the possibility space, as I like to say, to try different things and use that trial and error to solve problems. But you still have to manage it. You still have to coordinate those actions. So the diversity um, can actually be good up to a point, but if that group size gets too large, it can it can hinder uh, the ability to lead effectively. And so that's why you know you get this more hierarchical structure in very large organizations because the leaders have to hire you know lower level leaders who hire lower level leaders, and you kind of have to fractal that out in order to try to coordinate the actions over thousands of thousands. Um, another one is. Um, and that's not just the size of the group. That's also based on the harsh. So the harsh, harsher the environment, the more uncertain it is, um, the harder it is to coordinate the actions with increased diversity. So diversity is good. It brings a lot of point, different points of view that can help you solve the problem, but it does need to be coordinated. Uh, leaders who emerge in smaller groups with less harsh environments will have a better chance to lead uh, a group to survival than a leader in a large group under harsh, uncertain conditions. Better leaders are more severely affected by diversity of actions than worse leaders. That's interesting. So this, so this uh, study was able to basically distinguish between, uh, you know, better leaders and worse leaders. And then they looked at what the harshness of the environment did and the better leaders uh, and diversity, sorry. So the better leaders, as they defined it, were actually more severely affected by the diversity. And that's probably just a way that the better leader is maybe having this method of coordination. But then uh, if the diversity by definition changes, then maybe the coordination gets more challenging. Uh, as group size increases, the quality of the leader matters more, right? And you actually see this nonlinear drop off between ranked leaders. If you go to that paper, you can see how they do that. Leader quality is much more important for large groups and harsh environments than smaller groups. Leadership emergence is favored in large groups under uncertain conditions. Um, so really good examples of this would be something like Nelson Mandela or Mahatma Gandhi or MLK Jr. Um, you have these very uncertain conditions and that's where you typically see the leadership emergence be favored.
leaders will emerge out of that. So remember we talked about already, you can have this kind of spontaneous uh, revolution start to grow. And then often the leaders will kind of emerge after the fact. And that's a pattern that you see in these groups. Um, when group co and the last one here is when group cohesion is present, the need for a leader coordination is actually diminished. So you've kind of got this, this two sides of things. On one hand, a leader can come in and do really good cohesion. But if you just had a group by itself that had group cohesion, the need for very strong leadership is actually diminished. And so an example of this in nature would be things like, you know, self-organization, like you see in complex um, situations. I think a good example, uh, complex problems are, or complex systems. So a good example, again, might be, you know, the, the spontaneous emergence via a revolution where maybe you've got some kind of natural uh, coordination within groups. And then that allows a lot to happen. And then it gets to a point where a leader does need to come in to continue to, to uh, coordinate going forward as they get more refined in, in the approach. So anyways, those, those were the results of uh, you know running these simulations and doing these mathematical models like that. So what I wanna do now before I just jump into the rest of it and we kind of finish off uh, the episode is I just wanna take a quick look at the non-trivial playground so the people that are on, uh, the, the, the Patreon subscribers can see uh, the visuals of what that looks like. And I'm just gonna kind of move the toggles back and forth and just relate that back to some of the things that we've been talking about. So let me do that now. Okay, so here I am in the non-trivial playground. So just a simple site that I set up. Um, so you can log in again to nontrivial.online and we'll load this website. Um, it, it's really for desktop. I mean, it technically appears on mobile, but um, definitely works better on desktop. So just click on the episode, the tractability of calmness. And then I've got these charts uh, similar to the ones that I showed from the paper. But again, these are interactive, so you can play around with it. So here I've got two. Uh, the first one is related to the probability of survival versus that, that deviation from optimal actions. And so what we can do is we can come in here uh, you click on the equation, see the equation I'm talking about here. This is the survivor function. Uh, we can start to toggle things like the environment of harshness, the group size, and action deviation from optimal. So again, zero is optimal. And if you start to toggle that to the right, slide that to the right, the uh, you can think of that as the group taking less and less optimal actions. Before I start toggling that, you can just see I've got that kind of three bar. This is basically just reproducing what was in the paper. Uh, originally in a static sense. So they've got, you know, the three betas, right? The harshness of the environment, 25, 50, 100. So as the harshness increases, um, you've got, uh, so the, the most harsh, right? 100 is blue. And so you can see that the, the rate or the survival probability drops off uh, much more quickly, right? And then again, as you deviate from optimal actions, it also drops off. So just as a general pattern, right? We know the harshness of environment is important. We know that we want to get kind of uh, obviously closer to optimal actions within the group. So if I start sliding these now, then you can see this bends back and forth for people that are on Patreon. And so I'm increasing the uh, harshness of the environment. And you can see that in order to maintain a survival probability that's closer to 100, closer to the top here, um, you really need those actions to be closer to optimal. If the environment isn't at isn't that harsh, isn't as harsh, sorry, then uh, th those individual actions don't have to be as optimal, right? Because you still have decent probability. So this is just a simple example of, again, we're, we're capturing the dynamics of the system and you can come in here and you can think about what that means. And, and then, you know, really don't just think about the math. Don't think, just think about the science or the statistics. Think about what this means in everyday life, right? Think about the leadership, right? If you're in a harsher environment, you know, you're going to have to get better 
um, you don't have to influence the activity of the individuals of your group that much more, get them more aligned, whatever that means, right? Get them closer to how you define the optimal uh, activity. I can also do group size. So for the same kind of, uh, you know, let's say pattern that we've established here, let's say I've got this environment harshness sitting at, you know, 57 on a scale from one to 100, I start to increase group size. As soon as that group size increases, it starts to drop off very dramatically. So you can start thinking, well, if I have an appreciable group size, I need that environment to be backed off, you know, in, into much more favorable conditions in order to have a decent survivability, you know, kind of uh, curve here. Again, if you're only listening to from an audio perspective, you're going to see obviously hard to visualize this. So head on over to the site if you want. And then this is not changing the graph. This just shows that as I deviate from optimal behavior, you can see the survival probability drop off. So these are the kinds of things that we try to capture in models, right? How, how harsh is the environment? What is the size of the group? How optimal are the behaviors? And you can think about that in terms of, you know, a particular political leader, a particular size of the group, uh, the likely, you know, the level of, of kind of alignment or optimality of those of the people within that group and things like that. So I think it's pretty interesting. Again, interactive visuals like this just help build that intuition. You can almost build a bit of uh, muscle memory around kind of the dynamics of the patterns that we talk about. So I think that, you know, that's why it's interesting. That's why I want to set this up. Um, the second one here that I have is the probability of survival versus group cohesion. So again, this is kind of how well uh, the individuals of the group are essentially doing the same thing, right? We had that average term in there, a very simplistic way of thinking about <laughs> cohesion and people working together, but still uh, still kind of interesting. Um, so we can, we can toggle different things here. So I can, again, increase the environment harshness and, uh, what it's doing is plotting the survival probability against the group cohesion. So obviously better cohesion increases the probability of survival. If I back harshness off, right, you've got a better chance of survival regardless of the cohesion. If the environment gets worse, right, you're going to want to have um, much more cohesion in order to have a decent chance of survival, right? Again, we can do the group size. If we increase the group size, it starts to drop off. Um, you know, if we back off the environment and then play with the group size like that. You got much better chance for survival. And then group diversity is just uh, how different the actions are within that group. Okay. And so if they're much more diverse, you're going to have to have that much better cohesion in order to still have survivability and on and on. Okay. So you've got the three toggles for the cohesion at the bottom. You've got the three toggles at the top for um, the probability with environment harshness. And so Head on over there if you want and just kind of play with the toggles and think about what it means. Think about it in your own life or your own group. If you're leading, if you're running a business, thinking about an organization or your role within that organization, if you're you know, an employee and not in a management position, uh, or you know, think about it in terms of the political leadership of different wars that have happened. You know, I, what I'm trying to say here is it's not just all kind of nerding out on math. It's interesting to think about these dynamics and what that means for some of the you know, political leadership and leadership in general that has happened throughout history. Um, and just use it to anchor. Again, these models are very approximate, uh, but they're nice anchors to that conversation. Okay, so let's bring this back to the kind of political examples that we're using and the idea of leadership. You know, so again, we've got, you know, these considerations of environment, we've got these considerations of, you know, the group size and the cohesion and the dynamics and the ability of a leader to affect the, uh, you know, kind of the, how optimal the actions are within that group. Um, you know, and, and I want to bring this back to what I call this episode, which is the tractability of calmness and this ability of leaders to have that positive impact on the, the individuals within a group. And that positive impact largely comes from a way of tranquility, of being able to, you know, really see the bigger picture, to, to you know, build those bridges, to, you know, uh, have strike consensus, uh, you know, make concessions 
and 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 do compromise, right? So consensus, concessions, and compromise. The ability to concede one's strength for something bigger than the, the, the than the current moment, right? And history shows us that truly effective leaders do not dominate those around, right? They tend to see consensus, uh, you know, with a style that's often described as collegial. They make concessions and compromises, and so it's not that kind of usual definition of strength, that domineering attitude, that dominating attitude, where they, you know just are always speaking strongly and sticking very closely to their uh, convictions. It's the ability to, to make those concessions and appear almost at the surface, maybe softer or weak to some, but, but really gives a true definition of strength in the long run. I think Nelson Mandela is a really great example of this, right? He has this virtue of compromise. I mean, he just stepping back and thinking about the history of Nelson Mandela a little bit, you know, he served 27 years in prison, right? His defining moments uh, really involved acts of compromise, pragmatism, and, and you know, reconciliation, right? Uh, you know, Mandela consistently displayed flexibility and magnanimity. So if you think about when he was in prison, right, um, you know, he had to basically learn Afrikaans, which was the, the, the language of his oppressor, right? And, and he did that so that he could work with them. And, uh, and that really taught him the power of persuasion and negotiation, right? We used those examples with uh, people uh, previously, that ability to persuade, to negotiate. And, uh, and he really used that approach going forward to just repeatedly win over, you know, what was a, at the time a skeptical white minority, right? Um, you know, Mandela opposed black nationalists who said that whites didn't belong in South Africa. Instead, he stressed a multiracial, a multiracial society, right? And, and this is one in which, you know, the whites were not only welcome, but necessary to the country's success. He was always looking for ways to, to, you know, to reach out to different groups uh, that, that were not currently his allies, right? We know that he won his, the, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993. Uh, he really helped lead the transition from apartheid to, to what we would consider a multiracial democracy. You know, he's the first black president of South Africa, served from 1994 to 1999. Um, he just made a ton of change in that time, and, and he's, he's very well regarded for a good reason. You know, um, he helped keep those political no negotiations on track at a time. Now, think about the harshness of the environment, right? At a time when many worry the country could spiral into civil war. So there was a ton of uncertainty at the time. Think about the harshness of environment. And we're looking at those models and how important leadership is specifically when you have that harsh environment. Think about those <laughs> toggling the, the little sliders and seeing the, you know, the graph change as we did that and, and, and building that intuition around those dynamics, we can think about those dynamics and how they relate back to very real world things like the leadership of, of Nelson Mandela, right? Um, you know, talking about the tranquility, the calmness, you know, he was willing to give in on a, a variety of different issues that allowed white civil servants and judges to keep their jobs. So it wasn't coming in and, you know, totally uprooting the whole thing. He worked with the oppressors, with the white people that, that were part of this apartheid system. I, I just think Nelson Mandela is a really good example of that, of that virtue of compromise. He, 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 he didn't have the super strong conviction that was against the oppressor and was going to come in and wipe the whole thing out. He still obviously had, you know, those feelings and those emotions. I mean, look what he went through with the 27 years of prison and having to live under that kind of regime, if you will, but being able to come to, to rise to power and say, we're going to work together. You know, the blacks and the whites are going to work together on this. We're not going to just remove the oppressor overall. We're going to figure out how to get this, to work in a compromising fashion. But I think that's a really, really great example of the tractability of calmness because in that un massively uncertain environment, when, when, when the people need that cohesion, when people need the positive leadership impact on their actions so that their actions can be much more close to optimal, I think Nelson Mandela was able to come in and do that in a very 
uh, you know, with, with consensus concessions and compromise. And just a, just a really beautiful example. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the tyranny of unconstrained personal rule when you give too much strength. So again, we saw that dispersal, you know, the Nelson Mandela example is another example of dispersal of power, right? We talked about that previously. You know, don't give all the power to yourself, disperse the power, give it to other people, let other people shine, even your enemies, <laughs> uh, to, to, to make those compromises because the, 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 the tractable solution is going to have to involve a lot of different pieces. Um, you know, Adam Smith is, is noted for just the, the quote unquote gross abuse of power as well as the the perverseness, absurdity, and unreasonableness that were more likely to be found under the role of single persons. That's what Adam Smith said, right? So, so you give too much power to the single person and it causes a lot of problems. And you can contrast that uh, in our last episode on the delusions of crowds where we said, you know, groups are less stupid, right? Even though they can get delusional, what the, the take-home message on that episode really was that, you know, that's a cost of complexity. And there is this kind of, when you step back, this ultimate reason to the, the immense problem-solving ability of crowds. So you need to tap into that. Uh, you know, again, you gotta, you gotta have that on balance. Uh, increased diversity is really, really good. But if you can't coordinate it, you know, this is how you know you have a really, really good leader. You tap into the diversity. You even tap into the uncertainty of your environment because there's informational content to those things that can improve the tractability of the solution. But only if you can coordinate it, only if you can leverage it, leverage the uncertainty and coordinate the diversity, right? So, so while groups are obviously capable of coming to stupid decisions, as we saw in Delusions of Crowd, the unconstrained personal rule is far more dangerous. So a good leader is going to, you know, quite frankly, dilute their power uh, or at least diversify it, spread it out, empower those around them, right? Um, so, so in terms of calmness and tractability, think about as a mechanism, you know, what is calmness doing? Why does it work? You know, I, I talk about sampling the possibility space, right? So anytime you have to solve a problem, you have to, you know, poke nature and try to tease out the information that's going to help you solve that problem. And so that's why you want to poke it from a lot of different angles. And calmness is a way of actually poking it from a lot of different angles. I would say that calmness actually samples, right? Samples to take different pieces of that possibility space much better than aggression because aggression, you're going to come up against a wall very quick. Um, you know, aggression is going to have you burn too many bridges. You're not going to be able to poke nature from a, a number of different angles if you get angry, right? And that's not to say there, there isn't a time and place for anger, but when you're too quick to anger or you're, or it doesn't even have to be anger. It can just be, you know, w when you don't remain calm, when you don't have the tranquility, when you don't see the bigger picture, you resist, you put up a wall and then you end up walking away from the opportunity, right? And you can see this play out. We, we've probably all done this to some extent in our own lives. Um, you know, the, you, calmness has a way of inviting you into the moment. It has a way of allowing you to tap into many different potentially positive pieces of information and opportunities that you can use to, to do really great things. So being calm enables more interaction with the environment, whereas aggression or anger will, will or, or the inability to remain calm is going to put up blockers and prevent us from engaging, right? Calmness is inviting and it's easy to work with. Groups that solve problems better than individuals, groups do solve problems better than individuals. So calmness is a powerful technique in life because calmness is going to allow you to work with a lot more people a lot more effectively. And it's, it's really, really powerful. And in some sense, again, it kind of sounds a bit obvious, but you know, it's, it's also obvious that it's very easy to get worked up and to get flustered by the storm that surrounds you and maybe toxic individuals that are in the group or people that you don't agree with, but your ability to, to, to remain tranquil, to see the bigger picture has, has a massive return on investment. It really does. It's a very, very practical thing. 
Um, it's not just like a feel good thing. So this idea of letting others take the lead, right? True power is a willingness to appear quote unquote weak. It's not true weak, but it, but it is a, 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 an ability or willingness to actually appear weak, right? Um, we've got the famous Chinese philosopher, uh, Lao Tzu, who said, you know, a leader is best when men barely know he is there, not so good when men obey and acclaim him. And I'll say that again. A leader is best when men barely know he is there, he or she, right? Not so good when men obey and acclaim him. So this idea of the strong leader as the acclaimed, look at him or her up there, almost worship, right? The, the, uh, in, in a cult-like way, that, that's, not, that's not true strength. And that's not going to lead, as we've seen throughout history in this, this countless examples, that's not going to lead to good leadership. It's not going to lead to good outcome. Um, you know, some presidents, using the U.S. president's example, have really been the most effective by letting others take a lead, right? Harry Truman um, let Secretary of State George Marshall lead the Marshall Plan for the European Recovery, right? The Marshall Plan was just, you know, also known as the European Recovery Program. That was a U.S. program providing aid to, uh, to Western Europe, right, following the devastation of World War II. Uh, it was enacted in 1948 and provided more than $15 billion to help finance rebuilding efforts on the continent. So if you if you go look up the Marshall Plan, so but that's an example of Harry Truman, you know, which really could have taken the lead on that, kind of gave a lot of power to George Marshall. They called it the Marshall Plan, you know, really leveraging people for what they're good at. If you have to lead a group, get to know, a good leader gets to know what people are good at and lets them do that and lets them run with it. They don't try to take over the whole thing. Um. You know, I do have this one tweet that I did recently but said that said, what gets you there isn't what keeps you there. And so this is something interesting to think about. You know, sometimes you see uh, successful, yeah, there's one example years ago where I went to this um, conference and there was this, uh, this really, really successful guy, he's like a billionaire and he's, he's, he's kind of up there and he was all calm and he was sipping his herbal tea and he was kind of talking about, you know, when I was young, I used to be, you know, aggressive and 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 really probably burned a lot of bridges and went after a lot of things and yada yada yada. And then I learned later in life that, you know, that's really not what's important. And 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 really, and then I was got a kind of this like zen-like demeanor. Well, the counter argument to that <laughs> to this idea of calmness is that, you know, maybe you needed that aggression a little bit to get you there. But now that you are there, it makes more sense to calm down. And I think there is a little bit of truth of that too. That that's worth that's that's worth bringing out. And I don't think people should be super aggressive and angry all the time. But sometimes you do need to kind of punch through, and I think that can help you open up some of the some of the opportunities originally. But once you're there, that's a different story. You know, it's kind of like you know Steve Jobs was, was maybe like really crazy to innovate a lot of stuff, but then he got fired from his own con uh, company, even though he got brought back later. Right, uh, certain presidents might get into power by saying a lot of uh, uh, aggressive or, or maybe off-putting things because it resonates with a certain group of people or enough people to vote him, vote him into power. But then once he's in power, if he keeps being like that, it can actually work against him, and then he can get you know impeached or something. <laughs> so the, what gets you there is not what always keeps you there. So I think a little bit, you know, it doesn't mean you need to be completely calm and tranquil all the time, especially at the early stage of things. Maybe you need to really go for something, but if you want to maintain it. And if you want it to be sustainable, uh, the, the calmness and the tranquility is really what's needed. I mean, I mean, another example, again, is the, is the spontaneous kind of eruption of revolutions. That, that is an aggressive thing, right? That's something that is not very calm. But once that kind of um, emerges and takes a foothold as something real, right, kind of like a new innovation coming out of nowhere, seemingly, 
right? It's almost got a bit of aggressive kind of nature to it. It explodes out and say, oh, this is something new. But if you want to take that new thing and make it work over the long run, make it a tractable, sustainable thing, that's where the calmness and tranquility has to come in. We see that in organizations. We see that with innovation. We see that with political leadership uh, to, to really have the long-term success. You're going to have to have the calmness and the tranquility to make that work. So what gets you there isn't what keeps you there. So, so, so sometimes it might be different people, right? Sometimes you need the Steve Jobs to come in kind of aggressive and have these crazy ideas. And then once you've got that, you need some other people to kind of come in from the more kind of level-headed reasoned <laughs> management perspective and say, okay, now we're going to take this and we're going to like, you know, make this into a real thing that, that lasts. Um, and that's okay. You can have different types of people on that. Uh, with that. Um, I think you see this in music, at least histor historically, right? You can have um, kind of really on the edge, eccentric musicians that are coming up with all kinds of crazy new music. But then you've got these management teams that come in and actually manage that so that they can get that onto a record, they can get the recordings, and they can turn that into a business, right? So it's kind of two different things. So what gets you there is not necessarily what keeps you there. It's just something to think about. Um, Okay, so I'm I'm just going to finish off now. It's a bit of a long episode. At the end of the day, you know, tranquility. Think of it as the goal, right? Being interested in something bigger than the moment. You know, even though again these these kind of little bouts of aggression might poke nature enough to get something interesting to come out. No matter what it is, that's going to die away. We got that self dampening aspect of aggression, or that that self dampening aspect I talked about of kind of putting too much of the focus on yourself. You. If you want it to be sustainable, if you want it to be successful, if you want it to grow, you have to kind of you have to find a peace with things. And I, I, you know, I, something else I tweeted recently was, uh, you know, calmness is being interested in something bigger than the moment. Um, another one is a sustainable process is a calm process. So it's not always as exciting, right? Um, we want to like punch through and we're excited, but give your problems to time. Give your problems to time and give them to people that work with you and not, don't make it about yourself. Don't think that you need to be front and center. Don't think that you need to, you know, have this focal point be on you for control. Um, be willing to give a lot of that up. That That's a type of power. Be willing to disperse the power. Uh, be willing to work behind the scenes be be willing to do things for the bigger, more proper reasons. And that will bring a lot of peace and tranquility to your own life. And I think if you end up doing something big, history will, will remember you in a much more positive light. Um, you don't need to be the iron, right? You need to just do what works. And if you learn to relax into the moment and be calm, be inviting, create the bridges, make compromises. Think of Nelson Mandela as that beautiful example. Work with your enemies that not only will you reach a level of, you know, contentment, which is really, I would argue, the ultimate goal in life, but you will have much more positive, effective outcomes. You'll have a real return on investment in your life. It's, this is a very practical, real thing to remain calm. And to use calmness as a very powerful tool. So, so giving up control to that ultimate power. Giving up control is the ultimate power. I've got a GIF on the right here for people on, on Patreon. Or, sorry, on uh, Patreon. Um, it's kind of a well-known uh, meme. This little GIF video in the, in the bottom right corner. It's got this dog sitting around all this fire. <laughs> 
and he's just drinking his coffee. He's like, this is fine. I think he's supposed to be in hell or something, but it's just this idea that look, life is complex. It's got a lot going on. You're always going to be in a storm. You're going to have enemies. You're going to have naysayers. Uh, and you're also going to have friends and you're also going to have supporters. You're going to have a mix of all that, but you kind of have to sit like this dog in this little video here and just sip and say, you know what? This is fine. Right. Because there's something bigger. There, there's a long-term tractability to all this. And, and I know that that seeing that and being tranquil and being calm in the moment is going to lead to better outcomes ultimately. So that is what I think is the tractability of calmness. So I hope uh, that was a good episode. I know that was a little, little bit long. Again, um, go check out that uh, website that I put together if you want to play around with some of those mechanisms. Um, I think that's you know non-trivial.online and you can play around, kind of build some muscle memory. I'm going to be doing that on those episodes now, try to just kind of see how, anchor some of the, the, the patterns and the mechanisms that I talk about from a mathematical standpoint so you can play around with it. It's not to get jargony about math. It's not to get all, you know, to nerd out on a bunch of things. I just think it's it's good to play around and see these mechanisms, you know, at play, right? See the dynamics of it. Uh, I got some suggest a bunch of suggestive reading um, that you guys can check out for the Patreon subscribers at the end. And uh, the only other thing I want to mention is, um, you know, I've got a couple really good reviews, a nice rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps out a lot uh, if, if people go uh, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star rating. And if you want, just give me a nice little review. It just helps the show a lot, really helps support it. And of course, the other way to support it is to head on over to patreon.com slash non-trivial, and then you'll get access to the visuals that I use throughout these episodes. And of course, you can download the actual deck in PDF format if you want, so you can have that for yourself. Again, go check out that non-trivial.online if you want to play around with some of those mechanisms. Thanks for uh, for, for listening. Uh, we've got the other episode coming up hopefully pretty soon. Uh, as always, uh, your support means everything. Until next time, take care.